Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions, from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science. We'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp, and I want to take this moment to say that ordinarily this podcast would be about something related in some near or distant way to a low-carb ketogenic diet. We've been into epigenetics, we've been into various areas. Well, these next couple of podcasts will not be about that. Instead, they will be about a different portion of an interview I did with Dr. Alan Gaby. And uh, though I've already described some of his credentials and what he has been in my professional life and development at med school, he is an internationally renowned researcher and physician who has really been focused on nutritional medicine. In fact, he's often called, behind his back, the father of nutritional medicine. So I want to describe what we'll be talking about in this particular podcast coming up. We talk about some things pretty controversial. Now, when I talk to Dr. Gaby, it's really hard to talk about something controversial in the sense that he is so research-oriented. As he says, he would often, before the internet, he would be reading the various articles, the various studies. You go into libraries, read the table of contents of various books. So he was just a sponge for all this information. He's a sponge, and I see him as a filter of valid information. So in his textbook of nutritional medicine that we've talked about before, and there'll be a link for this book in each podcast, and we get nothing out of it. There's no affiliate or anything. It's just a valuable book to get. By the way, it's under way under 200 now, and I bought it for 500 so that's how much I value his work. In this particular podcast, we are going to talk about vitamin D, things you can do that are believed to be and shown to help improve your outcomes should you get COVID and or to prevent you getting COVID. And you could say the flu in general, but we'll go into the specifics. You see, we don't cut any corners in this particular conversation. After that, we go into glycoma. In vitamin B3, we talk about zinc, copper, uncopper, and issues around the copper that's used in a lot of pharmaceutical supplements, methylated B vitamins, B6, P5P, pyridoxal 5-phosphate, methylated vitamins. Specifically, we hear a lot about, well, you need to have methylated B12, you need to have methylated folate. Well, in fact, that's not true, and we're going to go into both the claims that are of benefit for these particular kinds of supplements, vitamins, and when unmethylated B12 and folate are perhaps preferred. And we'll talk further about 
uh, the claims that are true and untrue around MTHFR and go in a little bit into that. And we'll break that and we'll have a subsequent podcast next week to conclude this particular interview. So I hope you enjoyed that. And I would suggest you have a notepad nearby to write some of these things down. So I enjoyed this. I got a lot out of it. I always do. He is the voice in the back of my head. And I hope he'll become the voice in the back of your head. Take care. Welcome for a long overdue interview, Dr. Alan Gaby. You know, you have been the voice in the back of my head for 22 years now. And I'm glad, not to say that your voice is going to leave my head, but it's always been, I wonder what Dr. Gaby would think about, and I have a long list. So we're going to start exploring some of that list. So thanks, Alan, for taking the time to do this. Let's start off at the top. You are probably a person that people ask about, what should I do about COVID? Where is nutritional therapy relative to COVID? Well, I wish we had more research. You know, there's so many things being studied and there's uh, not a lot of funding behind nutrition research because you can't patent them. So you have to base a lot of the decisions on what we know from other research on how to prevent and treat other infections. But there is actually some research on using vitamin D and zinc and uh, vitamin C for the treatment of COVID. So, so basically, a general program I would start out with is uh, basic nutritional improvements. Try to cut a, as much of the sugar out of your diet as you can. Sugar uh, depletes immune function in many different ways. It also has effects that are known risk factors for bad outcomes in COVID. It raises blood pressure. Mm-hmm. It causes insulin resistance and possibly diabetes. It causes obesity. It raises the blood levels of cortisol, which is the adrenal hormone that suppresses immune function. So there's nothing good about sugar in relation to COVID. And you can't prove that eliminating it is going to have you have a better outcome, but it has so many other health benefits. It's kind of a, what have you got to lose, except maybe going through addiction withdrawal for a few days. The other area that I look at, and this would require, it it would require uh, working with a healthcare practitioner who knows about this is to look for hidden food allergies. I'm not talking about the kind where you eat peanuts and your throat swells up. I'm talking about what many people in the integrative and naturopathic medical fields call masked allergy, where people are not aware that it exists, but it's a contributing factor to many different chronic problems from uh, arthritis to migraine headaches to fatigue, depression, and, and many other things. And what we do is an elimination diet followed by individual food challenges to identify the hidden allergens to see what is contributing to our chronic symptoms. If you do that, in my experience, many people who identified their allergens and got them out of their diet told me that they had a lot fewer and less severe infections going forward as long as they avoided those foods. So those are the two main dietary changes that I would recommend. As far as supplements, vitamin C has many different effects on immune function. We know that it uh, reduces the duration of colds by about 30%. And practitioners who use high-dose vitamin C, including intravenous vitamin C, have had dramatic responses in patients with infections. Two patients that I remember come to mind, one of them uh, had pneumonia. It was viral pneumonia. She was a woman in her late 50s. Uh, She came in for her first visit with a three-week history of viral pneumonia, and I hooked her up to a 50,000 milligram, 50 gram infusion of vitamin C. That's a lot. And I infused it over three hours. 90 minutes into the infusion, she became symptom-free and it didn't come back. So this was a three-week history of viral pneumonia that was cured 
in an hour and a half with a massive intravenous dose of vitamin C. Same kind of results with a young man who had mono. He was well within 48 hours. Typically, it takes uh, many, many weeks or even months for people to get well. So uh, there's a study out of China where they gave 12 grams intravenously every 12 hours for, I think it was four days, might have been seven days. And there was about a uh, 33% reduction in mortality. And if you look at only the sickest people, there was close to a 60% reduction in mortality. So those of you who have access to intravenous vitamin C, they won't do it in the hospital typically, but there are a lot of practitioners who will. That might be useful. But we also use oral vitamin C to what we call bowel tolerance. And again, this should be monitored by a practitioner so you know what to watch out for in terms of adverse effects. But basically, you take as much as you can until you get diarrhea, and then you cut it back. You take it in divided doses, three three to six doses per day. Vitamin D is another thing I would look at. uh, And we'll talk more about the controversies about that later, I guess. There's a study from France where they gave a certain metabolite of vitamin D. It's called 25-hydroxyvitamin D. It occurs naturally in the body. The body converts vitamin D into this compound, and it's sold as a prescription drug. In this country, you'd have to take 17 pills, and it would cost $1,200. The product is called calcifidiol, C-A-L-C-I-F-E-D-I-O-L, and it is approved for one particular indication people with an elevated parathyroid concentration who have kidney disease. So this is what the drug is approved for, but it's a vitamin D analog or vitamin D metabolite. And they gave it to people who were hospitalized with COVID. And the percentage of people in the placebo group that had to go to the intensive care unit, the ICU, 50%. In the group that got calcifidiol, only 2% had to go to the ICU. This is about the most dramatic benefit you, you will ever see in a clinical trial. There was another one that came out. uh, uh, Actually, that previous study was in Spain. I correct myself. The one I'm talking about now was in France. This was where they looked at nursing home patients, and those who got vitamin D had substantially lower mortality than those who did not get vitamin D, again, with COVID. Finally, a study uh, came out. It was from Brazil, and it was published only a couple weeks ago in the Journal of the American Medical Association. In this study, there was absolutely no benefit from vitamin D. The main difference between that study and the ones that was positive was in the negative study, they gave an enormous single-time dose. They gave 200,000 units one time, and then they followed them and saw how long it took them to get better. From previous research using vitamin D for other purposes, it appears that using single massive doses is not the best way, and it might actually create a, there's a therapeutic window, which means once you give too much, you start to lose some of the benefit. So I can't prove that, but that's possibly what happened that they gave too much at one time. So if I had COVID, I probably would take 10,000 units the first day, do that maybe for a week and then cut it down to maybe 4,000. But again, with medical supervision, there are potential adverse effects of high dose vitamin D. The last thing I would look at, well, there's <laughs> There's always things after the last one, but uh, zinc. Zinc is known to prevent COVID from entering cells, and they used it in in combination with hydroxychloroquine. I know the research there is controversial, but a lot of docs out there think this combination gives a lot better outcomes. We know that zinc has a direct antiviral effect against a number of different viruses. 
We also know that zinc, when given in the form of lozenges, uh, reduces the duration of the common cold by about 40 to 50 percent. My opinion is that if we were to use zinc, we should probably use it as lozenges because the direct release of zinc ions in the mouth may help prevent the COVID viruses from getting into the lung tissue because it's directly right there rather than taking it as a pill, having to get absorbed into the bloodstream, then uh, go back to the site of the infection. So uh, those are the three main things I would do. Uh, The final one would be uh, black elderberry, also known as Sambucus nigra. Black elderberry syrup has a long history of traditional use for respiratory infections. And there was a a meta-analysis, which is where they combined the results of a bunch of different studies. And they looked at four studies and they combined it and they found that there was a marked benefit reduction of symptoms in people who had colds or flu. Now, that's not COVID, but there is some evidence. It's it's kind of circumstantial. There is a virus in chickens that causes a, uh, it's a coronavirus and it causes what they call infectious bronchitis. So that's the closest thing in research related to the human coronavirus. But in the test tube, black elderberry extract inhibited the replication of this chicken coronavirus. So uh, it would seem reasonable that we would use this at the first sign of the infection. Some people have argued that it might be dangerous to use black elderberry because there was a study where it increased the release of cytokines. Many of you have heard of the so-called cytokine storm which is the massive inflammatory response that occurs in people with late-stage COVID. And the body's reaction, the inflammatory response, is what causes the deaths and the severe respiratory problems rather than the virus itself. Uh, But the study where uh, black elderberry increased cytokine release was done in a test tube with the white blood cells of healthy volunteers. So how that might relate to a person with an infection is entirely unclear. The only other study where they looked at cytokine release in relation to Sambucus was in animals where they gave them to them orally and it actually decreased cytokine release. So that's all the information we've got. And based on that minimal evidence and uh, my personal experience with it has been very good. My son had the flu when he was nine years old. He had the swine flu. It was uh, 11 years ago. And everybody in his class got it. They were all home for two weeks, and he came out with the same symptoms, identical. We put him on Sambucus. It was a proprietary product that was one of the few available at the time called Sambucol. We gave him a tablespoon every hour while he was awake. He was well within 30 hours compared with two weeks for for the rest of his class. So I know that's an anecdote, and we're not supposed to rely heavily on that, but I was really quite impressed with that. So based on the research and my own experience with him and other people, I probably would hit the body really hard with Sambucus early on. Somebody was in the late stages based on the theoretical possibility of an adverse effect. I probably wouldn't use it when somebody had an advanced disease. So that's a uh, not so brief summary of uh, the kind of things I would look at. Excellent. Excellent. You know, one thing about elderberry, I remember from Bill Mitchell in school, is that he would talk about if you used any berry and it hasn't been done commercially, if you freeze it first and then make your subsequent tincture or whatever, you've broken the cell wall and therefore you get more of the contents. It's just uh, an interesting aside. I've written it all down. Thank you uh, for that. 
That's a big deal, by the way. We're still, some people are thinking that uh, COVID is anything anymore. Some people are terrified by it. And then we hear the next wave of the new thing that came in. It's like, people are very confused. So I really appreciate that a lot. All right, well, let's go into vitamin D since that was part of it. And vitamin D is obviously something I measure and then you find high and low, and then you certainly put it into the protocol, but I'm not quite sure if that's sufficient enough. And sometimes I wonder if it's, you know, I induce hypercalcemia by encouraging people to go more. So let me know what you think. Yeah. So this is one of the few areas where I agree with the conventional medical community about (laughs) how to use a vitamin. I've always been of the school that very large doses are sometimes more effective than typical nutritional doses. For example, in the treatment of schizophrenia, if you use like three grams a day of vitamin B3 and three grams a day of vitamin C, according to the work of Abram Hoffer, a lot of schizophrenic patients have gotten well. I told you about the massive doses of vitamin C for infections. We use high doses of vitamin B6 for carpal tunnel syndrome, and the list goes on and on. With vitamin D, however, I disagree with a lot of what's being done in the so-called alternative or uh, natural medicine community where people are measuring the, the blood level and they're pushing the level with massive doses to bring it to what they claim is an optimal blood level of vitamin D. I've written about this and analyzed it and studied it. And uh, there are a couple of conclusions that I've come to. Number one, the blood test is extremely unreliable as a measure of vitamin D. Number two, they changed all the reference ranges. So to the extent that the result is reliable, which it really isn't, the numbers are very different than what they used to be. For example, a number of 15 used to be considered deficient. Now they say 30. Mm -hmm. And almost everybody not almost everybody, but probably 50% of the population comes out deficient based on these numbers. Number three, there is a a large and growing body of evidence that high-dose vitamin D not only is unsafe in that it can cause kidney stones with the hypercalciuria, increased urinary calcium that you get. Uh, There's studies in animals that it might cause uh, atherosclerosis or hardening of the arteries. And there's also evidence that high doses are less effective than moderate doses. One study came out in the AMA journal two years ago. Uh, They looked at a bunch of Canadian adults and they gave them either 400 units, which is not an optimal level. I think the evidence shows that 800 to 1200 is optimal for bone density, but they compared 400 with 4,000 and with 10,000 units a day of vitamin D for three years. And the bone loss was measured at the radius, which is in the arm, and they measured it in the tibia, which is in the leg. And with increasing doses, there was greater bone loss. 4,000 was worse than 400. 10,000 was worse than 4,000. And it was statistically significant. And this was clear evidence that high-dose vitamin D accelerates bone loss in the average healthy person. There's also research with multiple sclerosis, where they gave an average of about 13,000 units a day or 1,000 units a day. And the ones who got the higher dose had uh, greater disease activity mm-hmm. and more disease flare-ups than the one that got the moderate dose. And uh, there's also evidence in people with chronic lung disease, COPD, mm-hmm. chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Uh, higher doses seem to lead to more flare-ups than, than moderate doses. And if you're severely deficient, then it helps. But if you're not severely deficient, it either doesn't help or maybe produces a slight adverse effect. So one of the things we have to be aware of is vitamin D is very different from all of the other vitamins. In evolution, it is not a vitamin. 
Uh, there was not any vitamin D in uh, the human diet, unless maybe you stole some pterodactyl eggs or uh, lived near the sea and got some fish. The main source of vitamin D in the human diet is uh, milk fortified with vitamin D, artificially fortified. And there's some in eggs and there's some in fish. But uh, for people who don't eat that, they get very, very little in their diet. The vitamin D is part of what I like to call the sunlight complex. You know, you hear of the B complex vitamins. I call it the sunlight complex because when the human skin is exposed to sunlight, it produces vitamin D. It also produces a chemical known as corticotropin releasing hormone, which uh, those of you who have studied uh, biochemistry know it is a hormone produced in the brain. But lo and behold, it's also produced in the skin. It has multiple effects in the body related to immune function, cardiovascular health, gastrointestinal health, and other things. Also, the ultraviolet light from the sun goes into the eye th uh, through the retina, and it goes to the brain, the pineal gland, and it stimulates the hypothalamus and then the so-called pituitary adrenal thyroid axis, and it stimulates a lot of different hormonal functions in the body. So humans evolved with sunlight, not with the presence of vitamin D. And if you only take vitamin D as opposed to getting sunlight, you're not getting all these other factors. In addition, when you're continually exposed to sunlight, the skin manufactures vitamin D and then it breaks down the vitamin D into another molecule that actually moderates the effect of the vitamin D. It binds the, the breakdown product that is produced in sunlight binds to the same receptors that activated vitamin D binds to. So here, if you live naturally, and I'm not saying go out and get skin cancer by being out all day, but if you have a mild to moderate amount of sunlight exposure, you're not only getting vitamin D, you're getting breakdown products that modulate the effect of vitamin D, and you're getting many other things. If you just take vitamin D, you're not getting these other things, and I think the toxicity is greater and the effect is less. So what I tell people to do, don't measure your vitamin D if you're an average healthy person. Uh, if you have malabsorption from Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, or if you've got cancer, or if you never go outside, or if you're very elderly and can't manufacture vitamin D very well in your skin, sure, let's find out what your level is and maybe try to bring it up to normal. But there are so many errors that are uh, apparent in measuring vitamin D that it may lead to uh, inappropriate conclusions. So for the average healthy person uh, who's not getting much sun, I say take 800 to 1,200 units a day of vitamin D and don't measure your level. Now, I know that's controversial, but that's what I do. And uh, I've told this to many, many practitioners, and some of them are, are quite upset with what I tell them. Others yeah. say, oh, thank you for doing that. I had this deep-seated fear that what we were doing with these high doses of vitamin D are wrong. So Thank you for uh, presenting the evidence that that's uh, not the right thing to do. Absolutely, on. You know, it is not uncommon. If I was to call 10 naturopaths uh, colleagues, I can bet that their minimum dose is 5K and some are 10K for a couple of weeks and then dropping it down. That's a big deal. And people don't quite hear that. The other question that comes up, and I mean, I answered it my way, but you know, they go, all right, so what about Eskimos? Why aren't they all sick? What do we say? Is the sun not strong enough? We hear about, was it 37 degrees? And, you know, and, and you're in New Hampshire and I'm a New Hampshire boy and we have a long, you had long winters. Do you then say, I'm going to have, I'm going to go outside, vitamin D seasonal. I'm going to take my vitamin D. What's your 
winter aspect of that because people obviously thrive before vitamin D was a supplement in the north. Well, I generally supplement with uh, moderate amounts in the winter because you don't get much sunlight then. So maybe a thousand units a day during the winter, I think is a good idea. Uh, Some people higher, but most people that's fine. As far as uh, how people who evolved in the north uh, deal with low vitamin D, it's interesting that, uh, you know, Scandinavians have very fair skin Mm. and African-Americans, blacks that live in Africa, obviously uh, have the darker skin and their ability to synthesize vitamin D is reduced. But also uh, there are genetic differences. Blacks have a different in the in what is called the vitamin D binding protein. They have lower concentrations of vitamin D binding protein. So a higher percentage of the vitamin D that's in their body is free as opposed to being bound to this protein. So that means for whatever amount they have in their body, more of it is active. So there have been, uh, and we don't know a whole lot about it, but there have apparently been evolutionary changes uh, so that people who evolve in a certain area related to the amount of sunlight uh, have evolved in a way to deal with that. And that's probably why when certain ethnic groups move to Europe, they end up with serious vitamin D problems because they were not genetically set up to live in that area. And, uh, you know, South Asians, for example, end up with severe vitamin D deficiency when they move to the United Kingdom. It's a genetic issue. And I think uh, those who have migrated, we should, uh, you know, measure their levels and and deal with them as individuals. But otherwise, you know, I think uh, the body does remarkably good at handling differences. Thank you for that. That's uh, a great explanation. Let's migrate into the nasty complex of B vitamins. But nasty. uh, yeah. Let's start with um, let's do glaucoma and B3 first, then we'll get into methylated vitamins and uh, wherever we want to go from there. So tell me about B3 and glaucoma. Yeah, well, glaucoma is a condition where the peripheral vision gradually uh, shrinks in and you, you can't see wide vision. And it's because of damage to the optic nerve. The best known and most obvious risk factor is when the eye pressure, known as the intraocular pressure, goes up. And that uh, it's kind of like having high blood pressure, but here it's high intraocular pressure and that uh, continued pressure damages the optic nerve. Uh, However, there are people who have what they call normal tension glaucoma, which means their intraocular pressure is not elevated and yet their optic nerve gets damaged too. So what's going on there? And there are some people with high intraocular pressure who get glaucoma and others who don't. So uh, you have to look at what other factors are involved. And what animal research has shown is that the functioning of the mitochondria inside the the optic cells starts to become impaired before there is any evidence of actual glaucoma. And this impairment seems to be related to a deficiency of those nutrients that are involved in energy production. Niacinamide or vitamin B3 is one of those. There are others. There's coenzyme Q10, there's magnesium, and there is iron if you're deficient in iron. But they looked at uh, an animal model of glaucoma where uh, mice genetically, uh, they all get glaucoma. They have elevated intraocular pressure and they all get glaucoma 100% of the time. And they gave them niacinamide and it prevented the development of glaucoma. We also know that uh, blood levels of niacinamide are lower in people with glaucoma than in those who... uh, who don't have it. So this is uh, early evidence 
But uh, it stands to reason that if there's an age-related decline in mitochondrial function, which there is in glaucoma, in people who have glaucoma, there's an age-related decline in the mitochondrial function of the cells of the retina. And niacinamide and those other nutrients that I mentioned have the potential to uh, reverse that. Uh, and as I said, we know that uh, blood levels of vitamin B3 are low in people with glaucoma. And we know from the animal studies that it can prevent the development. So based on the fact that we have used niacinamide for other conditions, uh, we've used it for osteoarthritis, we've used it for insomnia, we've used it for anxiety, and as I mentioned before, for schizophrenia, uh, it seems reasonable to, uh, to supplement with it. Now, a safe level for most people, 50 to 100 milligrams, nobody's going to be concerned about that. If you're getting in the, the gram dosages, you need to have that followed by a practitioner because you want to do some blood tests to make sure that it's not damaging your liver. If it's very high doses, it can do that. But uh, even a moderate nutritional dose has the potential to either prevent or slow the progression of glaucoma. Very exciting. We'd like to see a nice controlled study come out, which is uh, pending as far as I'm told. Yeah, absolutely. I know we're not talking about uh, age-related macular degeneration, but since we're in the eye, is there any association between those two? Usually we hear about carotenoids and so on and so forth for the uh, age-related macular degener degeneration. Do you see any crossover or anything? Um, I have not seen any, uh, and uh, I think they're two separate conditions. Like you said, uh, the lutein, zeaxanthin, uh, also maybe vitamin E might help. There's evidence that uh, bilberry, which is... Uh, a supplement. It's same. It's got the same molecules as the uh, as the blueberry that we eat. That's mm -hmm. available as a supplement. Uh, there's some evidence that ginkgo biloba, which is an herb, might help slow the progression. So there are, there are a whole lot of different things that have been used, and of course, zinc. Zinc is, is crucial for macular degeneration. One of my pet peeves is some of these uh, commercial products out there that are made by the drug companies that are said to be useful for macular degeneration. They have zinc in the form of zinc oxide, which is very poorly absorbed. And we know that when you take a lot of zinc, you have to take a little bit of copper because zinc, excess zinc can deplete copper and can cause a whole host of problems due to copper deficiency. So they do put copper in their uh, supplements, but it's in the form of cupric oxide. And there was a study published about 15 years ago, and I quote it, the absorption of cupric oxide by humans is, quote, not significantly different from zero. <laughs> That's the way they said it. What that means is you can't absorb cupric oxide. So here they're, they're giving you copper to balance zinc, and it's in a form that's not absorbable. And then they give you zinc in a poorly absorbed form. So there are a lot of uh, well-designed products made uh, in the health food industry as opposed to the drug industry that use zinc in better absorbed forms like zinc picolinate or zinc citrate or zinc aspartate, copper, or anything but cupric oxide. Is fine. So, you know, I don't know why these drug companies do this. And they, they, it's fairly widely known. So they're obviously not getting good consultants. No, yeah, obviously not. Let's migrate into more of the B complex in terms of methylated vitamins. You know, part of, I don't know when this started, it certainly had to do with MTHFR gene and the idea that, well, you can just hop around that problem with methylating it because that's what that's supposed to do. And then it went to everything. You know, everything has to be methylated. And I'd love to hear what you have to say on that. I think it's gone too far. I, I'm not going to spend the time to track it down. I think you have. Yeah, I've done my best. There's not as much, much research as we'd like. Uh, anecdotally, uh, we see that the, the activated form 
this is actually not even methylated, but it's the activated form of vitamin B6 known as pyridoxal phosphate. Mm. So it's phosphorylated uh, as opposed to methylated. But anecdotally, some people with carpal tunnel syndrome who do not benefit from pyridoxine, which is the widely used form of vitamin B6, if you switch them to pyridoxal phosphate, they do better. There's not published information on that. There is some published information on a, a certain type of epilepsy that happens in very young children. And when they gave them pyridoxal phosphate, they did better uh, in some cases, not all, than when they got pyridoxine. Other than that, there is not any research I've seen on that the activated form of B6 being better than pyridoxine. As far as methylated folate, that has been used to treat depression. It's actually approved as a prescription drug. Mm-hmm. But I think the, uh, the evidence has been misrepresented or misunderstood because people who have the genetic polymorphism that you mentioned, the MTHFR, they clearly have a higher than normal requirement for folic acid. But the claim is made that they cannot convert folic acid to its active methylated form, and therefore you have to give the methylated form. But let's look at the research that's been done to investigate that. One of the things that uh, folic acid is used for is to lower homocysteine levels. Homocysteine is a breakdown product of the amino acid methionine, Mm -hmm. and it appears to be quite toxic in the body. Uh, It can trigger a whole host of different problems, uh, and elevated homocysteine levels is a risk factor for dementia, cardiovascular disease, osteoporosis, and various other things. So you don't want to have high homocysteine levels. And one would think that if you had the genetic abnormality, the MTHFR abnormality, that you would have to take the methylated folate. In fact, when they compared, they found that in people that had this abnormality, folic acid actually lowered homocysteine levels more effectively than the methylated form did. So theoretically, from what we can extrapolate from biochemistry, we would have assumed the opposite. But as it turns out, folic acid is more effective for people who have that genetic abnormality. In addition, although no direct comparisons have been done, we know that the methylated form of folic acid, of methylfolate, is effective as a treatment for depression when you give it in combination with something like Prozac. It improves the effect of Prozac, but only when you give it at 15 milligrams a day. It does not work when you give it at half that dose, at seven and a half milligrams a day. In contrast, when you use folic acid as an adjunct to Prozac, it's effective at at ranges of 0.5 to 5 milligrams a day. So it appears that folic acid is more potent as an adjunct to antidepressants than methylfolate is. So a lot of times we make extrapolations based on what we think should be from basic science biochemistry and it turns out to be the opposite. As far as uh, methylated uh, vitamin B12, there are studies showing that methylcobalamin, which is methylated B12, is effective for the treatment of some conditions, but I have not seen any comparative studies to compare it with something, for example, like hydroxocobalamin, which is the kind that I use. Uh, So at this point, uh, and riboflavin, well, that's actually phosphorylated too, riboflavin 5-phosphate, not methylated. So at this point, I I would agree with your initial conclusion that most of this is hyped, and we actually don't even know whether it's less effective in some cases. Mm -hmm. We do know that uh, taking an extrapolation from vitamin B12, when you put vitamin B12 in a multi with thiamine and vitamin C and copper, 
it damages the vitamin B12. It, it breaks it down and converts it into other things. And we know that methylfolate is relatively unstable compared with folic acid. So if you put methylfolate in a multivitamin with a, a dozen other chemicals, we don't know if there's going to be some oxidation damage, whether it's going to break it down. So that's the other reason. Uh, while I do use methylfolate occasionally, I'm concerned about putting it in a multivitamin with a whole lot of other things. Yeah, good point. Good point. A bit of a tangent here. Um, on this, you know, when I was in med school back in those days, uh, MTHFR was just starting to come out and you had to order it. Then in practice, you had to order as an individual test, you know, to Quest or wherever your lab was. And I don't know when I discovered. So I'm, I'm homozygous and my wife is homozygous. And relative to homocysteine, she's less a believer in supplementation as I am, be that as it may. And so I said, just go take your homocysteine. You know, let's go down and get a take. And hers was really high. I won't even give you a number. It was really the highest I've ever seen. However, she also did it at a time in which uh, we generally don't have dairy. She had a dairy splurge because she does it for her birthday and so on. Do you have any association that you know of homocysteine and dairy? I know this is kind of like left and right, a bit too far of a stretch. Was it a fasting level or did she take it right after? Fasting level. Milk no, no, fasting level. Fasting level. I don't know of any direct association. We know that any food that's high in uh, methionine, which animal protein is, mm. and you know, dairy has protein. If you have a high methionine diet, you're going to convert more methionine to homocysteine. But I don't think it would be even close to producing the highest level you've ever seen. So no, I, I don't think there's a specific association with that, but there is an association with high animal protein. Gotcha. Yeah, I was 50. I was the control and I was two and three in terms of the homocysteine and the fasting. Thanks for that. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. I just wanted to encourage you to send in your questions to drgoldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Many of you have, and so what I've done with these questions that I've gotten back to most of the people I email, but some of the questions that were so good, and if they were overlapping to other questions, I would combine them and try to put that into the topic of a podcast, either via one of the micro topics that are covered in an interview. As you know, we cover a lot of topics in any given interview or some of my own sort of reporting, if you will, on some of these issues. So please keep the questions coming. Feel free to send in an email and uh, I will get back to you. Stay listening, send in your questions, and I will definitely get back to you.